This morning we, uh, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6, starting in a new section in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we, uh, we finished up chapter 5 last week, uh, a chapter that was all about righteousness, the importance of a righteousness that stands out, that's different from the people around you, from people who don't know Jesus. But anytime you start talking too much about righteousness that stands out, you're edging closer to attempt, you're being tempted towards a pitfall that has, that has tripped up, that has swallowed up religious people from the beginning of religious activity. That pitfall is religious hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. I don't know if there's anything that's turned more people off to Christianity or religion in general than knowing Christians or other religious people who are hypocrites. Certainly something I deal with in, in talking to people who are new, maybe talk, talking to people who are testing out Christianity for the first time or coming, testing out whether they might want to come back to the church after growing up in the church and then leaving it because of what they experienced there. One of the co- most common things I run into, and maybe this is something some of you this morning are feeling, with, feeling burdened by even now, even today, is, is people turned off by, even burned by, hypocrites. People who say one thing then do another. People who are leaders even in their churches. Celebrated even by other leaders. Propped up. Publicly put in front of others as models. But privately known by you to be frauds. Jesus is as harsh in his words against hypocrites as any of you or anybody that I've ever talked to. Hypocrisy is not something that surprised Jesus. And it isn't something that should surprise us as Christians today. In fact, Jesus' words to us this morning in Matthew chapter 6 and in what he's going to say in the weeks to come, they're meant to put on our radar hypocrisy in vivid terms that we can't shake. They're meant to help all of us walk around as people who know we could be hypocrites. And that if we are, we might be the last ones to notice it. They're meant to shake us up out of our apathy, out of our, out of our uh, just sort of customary, routine practice of religion so that we're aware and sensitive to where we might go wrong. So this sermon that Jesus is preaching, the Sermon on the Mount, it's, even, in, even in the passage we come to today, it's still about righteousness. And it's still about the importance of a righteousness that shows up so that you show you're part of a kingdom that's different from the other kingdoms of the world. But it's also about protecting us from a misunderstanding we could trip up on. A misunderstanding of things that Jesus has said. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to point you to the first verse in chapter 6 where Jesus announces, here's the thing I'm going to be talking about for the next chapter. He announces his big subject. And then we're going to unpack the first of several examples he gives us of what he's talking about. So we're going to look at the main warning Jesus gives us. Warning us to recognize there's more than one way to be righteous. There's a good way and there's some really bad ways. And, And then we're going to look at his example. How he makes the case. How he warns us using something that's really common for religious people to do. I want to start by reading this passage. Uh, I'm, if, I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word while I do that. I'm going to read from verses 1 to 4 
of Matthew chapter 6. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you'll have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is God's Word. You can be seated. I want to look at the main warning in verse 1 of chapter 6, and then we're going to look at his first example. The main warning and then his first example. So far, in chapter 5 of the sermon, for the first section of what Jesus is talking about, he's been trying to emphasize the brand of his kingdom. There's a certain identity, a kind of branding that goes with being with Jesus. He wants to, he's described so far what his followers are going to be known for. They'll be known for things that are different than what other peoples are known for. Peoples with different values, different ambitions. They'll stand out. But now, in this verse, he makes a claim that seems to go against everything he said in the last chapter. So, let me, let me just to refresh your memory a little bit. Here's what he says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. In Matthew 5, 16, Jesus says, Let your light shine before men, so that they may see your good works, and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Let your light shine before men. We get what he means by that metaphor. He wants you to stand out. Just imagine the whole world is a world of darkness. Your life should be like a flashlight in that darkness. A candle. Or, in his image, a city that's set up on a hill. Imagine being in a completely dark place. Traveling in, in some sort of ancient remote village. Or up towards some ancient remote village. And, and you can see it because it's up on a hill. Nothing else is bright around you. It's just utter darkness. But you see a hill... And on the top of it, a village where people have lanterns lit. That's going to shine out in unmistakable glory, right? Jesus is saying, that's the way your life is supposed to be. Don't just blend in with everyone else. Especially, don't just blend in out of some quest to be relevant. As if you've got to be like everyone else before you'll be useful to everyone else. Actually, Jesus is saying just the opposite. Unless you're standing out, you're not useful to anybody at all. What good is salt that doesn't taste different from the food you put it in? If it just blends right in, it's useless. You may as well just get rid of it. So if you really want to be helpful, if you really want to be relevant, then your lives can't just look like everyone else's. You've got to stand out. But then in chapter 6, verse 1, he says, Beware of practicing your righteousness in order to be seen by other people. So let your light shine. Be seen by other people. Beware of practicing your righteousness in order to be seen by other people. Be righteous so that men can see it. But don't be righteous so that men can see it. How do we resolve this tension? I think think it's pretty clear once you think about it for a little bit. 
What Jesus is saying is something that rings true in our experience, and that is that people can sniff out hypocrites. And if you're only being righteous in order to impress someone else, you're not going to end up impressing them. They can tell. You can't be useful if you just blend in, but you can't really stand out if you're trying to stand out. If the reason behind you looking different from everyone else is your sheer desire to look different and be noticed by other people, then actually you're not going to stand out at all. The only way for you to stand out with a life that shines to the glory of God is when you care more about the glory of God than you care about standing out. Standing out is a downstream effect of what you're shooting for. It isn't an end in itself, not for you. Only goodness that's done to please God with with that motive behind what you're doing is going to shine before others in a way that he gets glory instead of us getting glory. As soon as standing out is part of our motive, we won't stand out at all. All right? I've just said the same thing about five or ten different ways. I'm going to keep doing that for a couple more minutes here just so it's clear. (laughs) People are really good at telling the difference between the genuine article and a fake. I think it's because we're default self-promoters. We're all pretty good at promoting ourselves, and that makes us pretty good at recognizing when other people are promoting themselves. Other people are always going to be good at detecting hypocrisy. And what that means for you, friend, is that you aren't nearly as subtle as you think you are. You aren't nearly as subtle as you think you are in your name dropping, in your offhand references to what you've done, to your accomplishments, in your secondhand compliments, reporting what someone else said good about you. You haven't figured out how to hide what you're so keen at recognizing in other people. We can tend to think that we're better than others are at sniffing out hypocrisy and then at least behave like we're better than others at hiding it in ourselves, but we're not. And if you're trying to impress someone else, they won't be impressed. Not over the long haul. They won't notice God. What they'll notice is you. And they won't like what they see. Neither will God, who sees even what other people might not. The Bible says consistently that God is someone who sees the heart. So even if you are good at fooling somebody else, you're probably not as good as you think you are, but, but even let's just say you're great at hiding what's going on in your heart from others, you can't hide it from God. He sees it. He won't be pleased by what you're trying to do. Now, to make his point, that's, that's, that's the point for the next chapter. Chapter 6, pretty simple point. Don't do good in order to stand out. You won't end up standing out, not in the way you're supposed to. Jesus makes his point, though, with three great examples. One of my favorite things about Jesus' teaching is that he's so good at coming up with images that make sense, that help us take the idea. I mean, that's a pretty simple idea already. He started with a simple idea, but he wants to make it even more simple, 
even more recognizable and tra- traceable. So he gives us three examples that, that, are, that are basic to the practice of religion. Not just Christianity, but Judaism, Islam, and other faiths as well. Jesus, in, the next, in what's coming in chapter 6, takes three practices that are really common among religious people. Giving of alms to those who are in need, prayer, and fasting. Giving, prayer, and fasting. And he shows how each one of those things, those outward practices that look like they're very pious, could ultimately be more about us than they are about God or those that God has called us to serve. He's trying to help us see how we might be guilty of practicing our righteousness in order to be noticed by others rather than in order to please God. So we're going to take these examples in the weeks that come, starting with today. So so the rest of our time this morning, I want us to unpack his first example, which we read just a minute ago, verses 2 through 4 of chapter 6. It's an example of giving. I think we can think of it not just as giving of money, but as serving the poor in general. In verse 2, Jesus assumes that his followers are going to be giving to those in need. He takes that to be a given. The Old Testament consistently said, calls his, God's people to be sensitive to the needs of the poor, to make sure that they provide for their own. And God ties that back to his care for those who are poor and needy, to the fact that when his own people were oppressed and enslaved, he showed up, he came for them, and he delivered them. Everything about the way his people were supposed to live was supposed to reproduce that beautiful act of God's redemption. Everything was flowing from what he had done to them to save them. So Jesus doesn't turn that over when he comes to his example here. He doesn't say, you know, in my kingdom, we're not about giving to those who are in need. No, he says, when you give to the needy, he assumes you will. He just wants the practice renovated. So it's more about God than it is about the giver. Now, I want you to see simply the, the contrast between two ways to give money. Two ways to give money. Two ways to serve the poor. The first is the way of the hypocrite. And then there's Jesus' alternative. Jesus says, when you give to the needy, don't be like the hypocrites. He's using a word there from the theater. Hypocrite is a word for an actor, for someone who wears a mask, who takes on an identity that's different from his real one. An actor who takes on an identity that's different from his real one always does that to please a crowd. That's why the image works so well for a righteousness that's fake. It's always an identity that you take on that's different from your real one, And it's always aimed at pleasing the crowd. That's really what Jesus points us to in these these verses. Don't be like a hypocrite who does something different than, who puts on a face that's different from what's in his heart. And don't do what you do. Even good things like giving to those who are in need in order to please the crowd. Look at how Jesus describes the mask that the actor wears. Think about this as the manner in which he does this good thing, how he plays his role. He imagines the guy sending out a trumpet in front of him, trying to capture attention, make sure all eyes are on him when he does this good thing. He's walking down the street with a fanfare to make sure that people fall in line behind him to see what this guy is going to do next, to make sure that when he drops his money in that plate, every eye is on him. 
It's probably just another one of Jesus' powerful images, kind of meant, meant for shock value to grab your attention. And no reason to believe there were actually people who were carrying trumpeters around with them as part of an entourage every time they wanted to give money. Probably using it a lot more, like we use a very similar term. That we talk about people who blow their own horn. Right? That's, that's what we mean. Someone who's constantly trying to tr- draw attention to themselves. If this person is going to do something good, they're going to make sure it's obvious. They're going to make sure it's noticed. That's how they're going to do it. Then Jesus also points us to why they do what they do. Not just the manner for their actions, but the the motive for their actions. And it's always the same thing. They want to be seen and praised by other people. Look at verse 2. Why do they sound the trumpet? That they may be praised by others. They're not serving the poor. They're using the poor. They're not not serving the poor. They're using the poor. They're not giving anything. Not really. They're buying something. Something more valuable to them than their money. They're using their money to buy what they really want. They want to be known by others as generous people. They want to be known by others as the kind of person that you always say, I can't imagine what we would do without you. What would we have done if it wasn't for you? That's what they want people saying about them. They're buying a reputation with their money. They're building their own brand. They're not representing God and His kingdom. They're winning admirers for their own kingdom. It's a timeless image, isn't it? I mean, if anything, our opportunities today for self-promotion are far more plentiful and easily accessible than anything Jesus' hearers had to work with. We may not blow trumpets, but people in our day definitely have buildings named after them. If they can give enough. Or others who can't afford buildings might have a spot on a plaque as part of a giving tier at some symphony hall or something or some such. Or maybe a name in a newsletter or VIP access at an event behind a velvet rope. And those of us who don't have the money to get VIP access or have our name etched in a plaque still have wrists to wear bracelets on. Still have torsos over which we put t-shirts. We still have all the social media platforms out there for live tweeting our way through anything good we might do. Now, you've heard, you've heard the classic question if a tree falls in a forest and nobody's there to hear it did it really make a sound sometimes I wonder if a good deed goes without a hashtag did it even really happen at all now obviously hopefully this goes without saying obviously there's nothing wrong with using platforms or t-shirts or bracelets or whatever to get create awareness you have to in this day and age over the course of the weekend, I've already worn two different T-shirts representing two different nonprofit organizations. I don't think it was arrogance that drove me to do it. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. What I'm saying is that we can't kid ourselves. Our advocacy can just all too easily be as much about self-branding as it is about the promotion of any cause. Honestly. Right? 
in the final note, before we turn to the way we are supposed to do good, has got to be the warning that Jesus leaves us with. The reason we've got to be so sensitive to our own attempts to brand ourselves as kind of peop- the kind of people who do good is that one, when, when we've gained for ourselves the praise of other people, Jesus tells us that's what we've gained and only that. It's not that there's no reward for people who do good in order to be noticed by others. It's that being noticed by others is the only reward that anyone gets. You may get what you're after, but it's all you get and it isn't much. When Jesus says they've received their reward. He's using an economic term for paid in full. Like imagine a, you know, an invoice with a charge on it, stamped with paid in full over it. You're not getting anything else. When they do what they do for the praise of others, they get paid in full because what they've purchased by their gift is nothing but a, an opinion of them. And it isn't much of a reward because we all know how fickle the praise of other people typically is. How briefly we're impressed by other people before we're just waiting for whatever comes next. Maybe you gave a lot last year, but the real question is, what are you going to do this year? See, you're not so much purchasing the praise of other people when you do good in order to be noticed by them as you are renting it. It's never yours to keep. It only lasts as long as they're limited and fragile attention spans. And then you've got to do more. And then you've got to do more. And then you've got to do more. You'll only have their good opinion of you as long as you keep paying for it. It's never yours to keep. That's Jesus' warning to us. Jesus assumes that we'll be giving to the needy. So we have to do it. The takeaway here isn't don't be generous or caring for those who are in need. This is a warning. It's not, a, it's not that he's prohibiting anything. He's trying to help us be careful, to be sensitive to what we might fall into. So how can we be careful? What are the warning signs that we're doing good to be praised by others instead of doing good to please God? I don't know. I think, I think that's an important question to ask of your friends. I think we all lack self-awareness to one degree or another. And our friends are a great gift to us to help us grow in self-awareness. So find the harshest critic that you know, the friend that you have without any filter, and ask them, do you think of me as a hypocrite? Or more specifically, how can, how can we be more sensitive than we are to our tendency to do good only to be praised for it? How might I recognize? What could I see in myself that maybe I don't see now that shows that's what I'm doing, even without recognizing it? I'm just going to give you a few questions here, but you're going to need your friends to go deeper. Here's, a, here's one question. Do you sense your desire to help out? To help someone in need? Do you sense your desire to help someone in need going down, getting weaker? If you know that no one will see what you're doing? 
Here's another question. Do you get bothered when nobody notices your service? Do you get bothered when others are noticed instead of you? Here's another one. This one's really subtle. Do you get bothered when others aren't visibly pursuing causes that matter to you? Good causes. Causes that people should pursue. Does it bother you when the things you're passionately pursuing aren't pursued by others? Now, the reason this one's subtle, but really important, is this. If that bothers you, that others aren't doing the things you're doing, then it shows that you're judging the faithfulness of other people based on what you see. That you're, it shows you're assuming that faithfulness has always got to be visible. That visibility is part of the goal. But Jesus celebrates what people do in secret. So somebody who's not doing what you're doing, at least not in a way that you can see it, could actually be faithful to what Jesus has called us to here. And the fact that you don't see it is a sign of how faithful they've been. That they haven't been trying to perform for you. They've been doing what God has put in their life to do. So does you, when you see someone who isn't doing the things that are important to you, do you assume that's because they're not doing good ministry? If so, that might be a sign that your ministry is done in order to be visible. You're expecting it of other people. It's one of many examples of how subtle this tendency can be. The tendency to perform. And we're just going to need each other to figure it out, to see ourselves right. Now, I, I want to move from the negative example Jesus gives, of what not to be as you serve the poor, to, to his positive example. What we do want to be true of us as we try to be faithful to God's call on our lives to serve those who are in need. Jesus lays out this alternative, the not hypocrite way, in verses 3 and 4. Same action, same giving, but a different manner of action and a different motive for its action. Different manner and different motive. Notice the manner first. Jesus uses another vivid example. This one's really famous. You've probably heard of this one before. It's literally impossible, but it makes a powerful point nonetheless. When you give, Jesus said, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. You need to be a sort of split personality when you give. So that your giving is secret even from yourself. Now, you can't literally do that. But I think we know what he means. I think what he's saying is, you shouldn't even be noticing and celebrating yourself. Not only should you not be trying to please other people and win their praise, you shouldn't even be doing what you're doing for a kind of smug self-satisfaction, a sense that you're among those who get it, that you're on the inside of what the world should be. If, if you notice that about yourself, if that's what you feel about your own actions, then you're just as guilty of hypocrisy, even though you haven't been trying to impress somebody else. So Jesus says, don't even, don't even dwell on what you've done yourself. You aren't even your own audience. Your giving must be in secret, even from yourself. His, his point is a powerful check on another error that we can fall into. There are plenty of people out there I think most of us would say this if pushed into a corner. They say you shouldn't do what you do in order to be noticed by others. Nobody likes somebody who does that, who's just performing, pretending. 
And no one thinks it's a good thing to need others' approval for your own self-satisfaction. Every, I think pretty much everyone would agree. You don't want to only understand yourself in light of how other people think about you. You need an identity that's more solid than that. But sometimes where we run to as we're running away from seeking other people's approval for everything that we do, sometimes what we run to, sometimes what we're even told to run to is a sense of self-satisfaction. I'll know I'm okay. I'll have a stable sense of myself when, when I feel good about me. And we can use good works for other people as a powerful source of feeling good about ourselves. And Jesus is warning us against that here. That, too, is a kind of hypocrisy. Your giving is supposed to be so secret, so focused on the act itself that you're not even thinking about yourself at all. And that leads us directly to the motive. That's the manner, really secret. And motive follows straight from it. What makes this kind of secret giving possible? Why would a person embrace this as opposed to this quick reward of somebody else's respect and approval? The text points us to three motives. Two that are right here on the surface of this passage and then another that's clear to us in the big picture of the story of Jesus and what he's done for us. I want to point you to three motives that make this kind of giving in secret possible. A giving that's not to impress anybody else. A kind of giving that's not even to make me feel better about myself. A kind of giving that's about God. What he sees. What he gives. And what he has done. Three motives to this kind of giving. Two that are from Jesus' words here and one that's, that's embedded in Jesus' work for us. So here's the first one. First motive that Jesus appeals to is the knowledge that God sees everything. Verse 4 says, Your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Here Jesus is building on a real common theme in the Bible, in the Old Testament, and especially in the Psalms, a seeing of God in this way often. Where can I go from your presence? Where can I flee from your spirit? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. God sees everything. There's a kind of warning here for us. That you may be able to fool others, you may be able to fool yourself, but God sees your heart. He knows exactly why you're doing what you're doing. You'll never be able to fool Him. And you can't have both praise of others and praise from God. It's a zero-sum game, friends. You can do it to be praised by other people, and you'll probably get that, at least for a time, and that's all you'll get. Or you can do it to please God, and you'll get that, but it won't come with the praise of others, not the kind you're looking for. There's a warning in it that God sees everything, but there's also a promise that He won't neglect us. There's nothing we could do, no sacrifice so great that He won't see it, that He won't love it, that He won't treat it as an investment in a kingdom where it will all be worth it. No matter how neglected you may feel by other people who aren't paying attention to you, you will always be seen by God. Always noticed. At least the second motive. The promise that God rewards those who want to please Him. If you want to please God, you'll get to please God. If you want to please other people, you'll get that. 
Not the reward you're thinking it will be, but you'll get it. If you do what you do to please God, you'll get that too. Jesus says, your father who sees in secret will reward you. I know this reward language can trip us up. Jesus, he's just finished criticizing people who do good only as a means to their own ends, right? Who do good in order to buy something else, what they really want, praise. It can kind of seem like that's what Jesus is saying we should do here. We should do good so we can buy ourselves a reward from God. Sort of motive makes the behavior just the purchase price for what you really want anyway, doesn't it? Isn't this, isn't this just the same thing? Different purchase price, different thing that we've purchased, but same process? I think not. I mean, everybody seeks reward in everything that they do. We all do things in order to get something else. That's just basic human behavior. C.S. Lewis is one of the ones who's helped me most get my mind around reward language like this. Jesus uses it here, he uses it several other places in this sermon throughout his teaching. We've got to get our mind around how, how a reward from God is actually a good reason to do something. Not just a mercenary thing where we're trying to manipulate God into giving us what we want. C.S. Lewis is very helpful. He, says, he, he talks about, in one of his writings, in an essay that he wrote, he talks about the fact that there's different kinds of rewards. There, uh, there's a reward, there's a kind of reward that has no natural connection whatsoever to the things that you do to earn that reward. It's really different. It's foreign to it. So he talks about money and love. Money is not the natural reward of love, he says. If you, that's why we call it mercenary if a man marries a woman just for the sake of her money. That's that money that he's getting doesn't have any connection at all to the marriage that he's doing. It's, the marriage is just a, a means to an end. But, Lewis says, marriage is the proper reward for love. So, if you're a real lover, if you really love someone, and then you marry them, that is a reward for the love that you have for them in a sense. It's what that love aimed for. It's what it wanted. But it makes sense in that case. It's natural to it. There's this clear connection between the two things. It's not wrong to desire something and then, and then be rewarded with that thing if what you're desiring matches, matches the reward that you get. So this is how Lewis puts it. Proper rewards are not simply tacked on to the activity. They're the activity itself in consummation. What's he saying? When you do good, when you give to those who are in need, God is the object of your giving. God is, what you're, God is what you're driven to. The image of God in this person that has need, that gives them dignity, that makes you want to connect with them, to help them. When you give to the person who's in need, God is the inspiration of your giving. This is how he loves. This is what he's done for me. I want to reflect him. When you give to those who are in need, God is the audience of your giving. I want to please Him. I love to know that He's happy. I especially love to know that I have made Him happy through what I've done. And when we give in secret, friends, we will get this reward. 
It's another way of saying we will get God himself. When God is what you're drawn to, when God is what you want to reflect, when God is what you want to please, who you want to please, then God is what you get. The reward that you'll receive is directly connected to the desire that drives you in the first place. It's not wrong to want a reward when it's one like that. I'll give you one more motive. This is, this is the end. One more motive to doing good, not to please other people, not to please ourselves, but ultimately to please God and doing it in secret. We've got to connect. If we're going to be motivated to that kind of giving, we've got to connect with the gospel's promise that in Christ... We are already justified. Why does anybody seek to win praise from, from other people? Why would you do something like that? Isn't it always because you feel like your identity isn't established yet? You're still working to build a brand? You're still working to make a name for yourself? You're still working to show yourself worthy? Isn't it because you feel like you still have something to prove? When you run after the the, the praise of other people, isn't it always because you feel like you've got something to prove? The approval that you get from other people is the evidence you need to know that you're worthy, that you're special, that you're a cut above, or in the language of the Bible, that you're justified. It's insecurity that drives us to seek praise from other people. And, And that's just, it's an awful way to live, isn't it? All of us have done it. Do it. It's an awful way to live. This insecurity is precisely what Jesus came to free us from. By his life and his death and his resurrection, Jesus promises those who believe in him that what he has done is now applied to them. That who he is is now who they are. The promise of the gospel is that even though you were sinful, rejecting God and all that he's offered you, hurting other people, guilty of doing things you condemn in other people, even though every good thing you've ever done has been done as a hypocrite, God still loves you. God still came for you in the person of Jesus, still died so that you could be set free, so that you could be different than what you were. The gospel is a promise of a new identity For everyone who trusts in Jesus. The promise is that when you trust in Him, when you look to what He's done to get your sense of who you are, then you will be identified by Him. His perfect life, that's now your perfect life. You are everything you were ever supposed to be in God's eyes where it really matters. His death is the death you should have died. You don't have to pay for your sins. He did. And His resurrection is your new life. A life where you don't have to be trapped in the same patterns that you've been trapped in. The only life that you may have ever known. That's not yours anymore. And in his resurrection life, where you live into him and all that he has done, you don't have anything to prove to anybody. God is the one who justifies. Who's the one who condemns? Who's going to say anything against God's elect? Jesus' blood covers him. Jesus' life defines him. Who's going to condemn 
until you connect with that, until you see yourself in those words, then you're always going to be a hypocrite, always trying to play a part. But in Christ, righteousness comes as a present, as a gift, as a reward that he earned and hands over to you. And when God tells us that in his word, why would we need to hear that from anybody else? Father, we aren't nearly as secure in your promises to us as we want to be. And that holds us back from doing good to those who have needs in the way that we know you've called us to. We understand, we recognize from our own experience that we are not shining as lights in the darkness, as cities on the hill in the way that you've called us to, partly because we're trying to draw attention to ourselves instead of doing what we do to please you. And so we pray that you would help us by what Jesus has already done and by what your spirit is doing now. You would help us to embrace and live from the promise that you are for us in Jesus and there's nothing else to prove. That your pleasure is the only pleasure we can enjoy fully. That you will reward those whose goodness never goes unseen by your eyes. We want to live with those motives in mind, not just to our minds, but in our hearts. So we pray that your word would do that work among us and that our, our relationships with each other would be encouraging this kind of living, this kind of goodness. For your name's sake, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.